0: Senator Kerry, if you are elected president, what will you take to that office thinking is the single most serious threat to the national security of the United States? Nuclear proliferation. Nuclear proliferation. Just for this one minute uh, uh, discussion here, is it just for whatever seconds it takes, so it's, it's correct to say... That if somebody's listening to this, and both of you agree, if you're re-elected, Mr. President, and if you are, re- you are elected, the single most serious threat you believe, both of you believe, is nuclear proliferation. I do, in the hands of a terrorist enemy. Weapons of mass destruction, nuclear proliferation, but
1: again, the test of the difference... Most of you might be old enough to remember that exchange from the 2004 presidential debate between George W. Bush and John Kerry. I remember watching it as a kid and thinking how out of place it felt. The Iraq War was raging... still loomed large, and nuclear weapons, with all their Cold War menace, just didn't seem to fit in. Thirteen years later, and the war of words over North Korea's nuclear program made questions of nuclear proliferation more relevant than ever. Adding to that, the US government releases the results of its review of US nuclear posture and strategy in early 2018, the first such review since 2009, and will determine how America plans to position and modernize its nuclear weapons arsenal. So over 70 years since the last nuclear weapon was used, these weapons don't seem to be going away. It's also hard to deny a more morbid fact that in a world where international norms are dissolving like never before, that the one big one could also disappear. So this week I talked to Sharon Squassoni, the director of our Proliferation Prevention Programme on the state of nuclear weapons policy and the world's efforts to reduce their impact. We start out on the issue of determining just how many nuclear weapons are out there.
0: Well, nuclear weapons are the crown jewel for many countries, right, in terms of their security. So there's a lot we don't know. However, we have a pretty good guess about numbers of nuclear weapons in the U.S. and Russia. France, and China, and the UK, so the five nuclear weapon states that were, one could say, legitimized under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. Where we don't know as much is for countries like India, Pakistan, Israel, and even North Korea. So the challenge, uh, which is an intelligence gathering challenge with North Korea, for example is how much fissile material do they have because that's the essential ingredient for their nuclear weapons. Uh, We know they have a certain amount of plutonium because we can make estimates from how long their uh, reactor operated. We know, for example, that the Yongbyon reactor only produces about six kilograms of plutonium per year right? So that bounds that kind of problem. We have no idea how much highly enriched uranium they have produced. We think we know where one of the facilities is, but they could have multiple facilities. And then the question is, what about their warheads and where are they located? Are they mated to their missiles? Are they stored in a separate place? So when experts talk about options like Taking out North Korean nuclear weapons um, not if we knew exactly where they were and how many they had, it would still be a difficult problem to target them, but honestly, we really don't know where they are or how many they have so the newer uh the newer countries the what we call the proliferating states. Uh, For those countries, there's a lot less information, uh, and um, experts in the non-governmental community have done a great job over many, many decades uh, trying to parse, um, you know, sift through a lot of other kinds of information to make estimates. They're not bad estimates, but, you know, ultimately, there's a lot of uncertainty.
1: And where are we in terms of reducing the amount of nukes worldwide? How um, how how has that progressed over the last few years?
0: So you have to look back over the last seven decades. The height of the nuclear weapon stockpiles was reached actually several decades ago. At at the worst level, uh, the U.S. and the then Soviet Union had more than seventy thousand nuclear weapons. Today, there are fewer than 10,000 nuclear weapons worldwide, and most of them are in the United States and Russia. Um, other countries that have developed nuclear weapons have much smaller stockpiles. So, for example, a China, you know, we estimate that China has about 300 weapons. Uh, Indian, Pakistan, less. Israel, less. North Korea, current estimates range from about, you know, anywhere from 15 to I think the highest estimate has been 60. I think it's very unlikely they have 60 weapons. But so when you when you look back, the numbers of nuclear weapons have come down because the Cold War is over. And the US and Russia uh, decided that they could do with many, many fewer nuclear weapons. But let's face it, 10,000 nuclear weapons is enough to create, you know, if not destroy the planet, create an uninhabitable planet over, you know, much of the the surface area of the United States. So um, in the estimate of uh, or in the assessment of many experts, it's still far too many.
1: And how does the relationship between U.S. and Russia as it is now, how does that impact how um, perhaps further reduction could take place?
0: The relations between the United States and Russia have been on a fairly steep decline for the last few years. But it's not just something since uh, Russia annexed Crimea in 2014. This kind of downhill relationship has, has been going on for longer than that. So the last... Bilateral arms control, strategic arms control agreement we had with them was signed. It's called the New Start Treaty. It was signed in 2010 between Presidents Putin and Obama, and that brought down strategic uh, nuclear weapons, deployed nuclear weapons to about 1,500. There is an opportunity. There's a there's an option in the treaty which expires in 2021, to extend it for five more years. This is a fairly simple, no-brainer thing to do. And yet, um, even though the Russians, um, uh, even after sanctions have been imposed on them, the Russians still support extending this treaty, but we don't seem to be able to get agreement on that. I I think in the end we may extend that treaty because it's – doesn't cost anything. I think just the sides need to get together, and the Trump administration needs to put people in place in the State Department and other agencies um, who work on these issues who can make that happen. But having said that, both countries—you know, the U.S. and Russia, and other countries like China—are engaged in what I would call kind of massive nuclear modernization programs. Um, there are reasons for this, uh, and that is for a long time the United States did not upgrade its uh, nuclear triad. So we are now looking at you know, new nuclear submarines, new intercontinental ballistic missiles, new bombers, new bombs, uh, because we haven't invested in them uh, over a long time. This will cost uh, the estimate over 30 years a, a trillion dollars. Um, Russia is also building new platforms, new weapons. Um, th- those The modernization programs for both countries make it a little difficult um, to prove to the world at large that we are reducing our reliance on nuclear weapons, but it also raises questions about well what are you know how do we view the future of nuclear weapons, what role will they play? On top of that, um, and by the way, you know the, the modernization, I should say, uh, doesn't mean we're going to have more nuclear weapons. It's just they're going to be modernized. Some of them may have new capabilities. Um, we are not. We do not have any intention right now to test nuclear weapons. Uh, none of the five nuclear weapon states has tested nuclear uh, weapons since the 1990s. Uh, because there has been a moratorium. So what we're trying to do is modernize the platforms and and uh, some of the weapons capabilities without resuming nuclear testing. Um, but the other irritant in U.S.-Russian relations is there's a big controversy over uh, compliance with a landmark arms control treaty. It was one that dates from the Reagan era, uh, the 1987 Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, it banned a class of missiles. We took these missiles out of Europe. Uh, they were Pershing and cruise missiles uh, on the U.S. side. Um, we took them out of Europe, and um, we were never supposed to make these missiles again. That They had a range from 500 kilometers to 5,500 kilometers. And now it turns out the Russians... Um, are making what we seem, what we think is a new ground-launched cruise missile within that range, and the Russians have their own allegations of U.S. violations. We are mired in this dispute, and it could very well turn out that if we are not able to resolve our differences, that that treaty will go by the wayside. Um, and that would be a further—well, uh, I think it would be devastating, actually, for um, the nuclear arms control regime as a whole.
1: Well, because it's supposed if the other side has it, the side that doesn't have it will be racing to get their own,
0: oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, in the new uh, in the defense authorization um, bill that is that is in conference right now uh, on the hill, there's money to uh, for the United States to uh, engage in research and development for a new ground launch cruise missile in the event we can't rescue this treaty from abandonment
1: back to kind of the the bigger picture uh, and what the rest of the world, the non-nuclear world has been talking about. Um, United Nations, there's been um, a vote to to ban nuclear weapons. Um, Tell us a little bit about that and and what, if any, effect it's going to have.
0: Let me tell you a little bit of background to this ban treaty. Um, You know, from the moment that, that nuclear weapons were developed, there have always been voices that said these weapons were too dangerous, we need to we need to ban them. Um, obviously uh, nothing happened for a long time because of the Cold War. Uh, there were initial uh proposals uh on on both sides, on the US and the Soviet side. Uh, for a variety of things like international control of nuclear energy and and banning nuclear weapons, what happened over time is that, you know, in 1970, um, we signed a treaty, the Nuclear Nonproliferation Treaty, and this was supposed to keep further countries from developing nuclear weapons, in exchange for something. And that something was that the five nuclear weapon states, the countries that had nuclear weapons at the time, that they would eventually make progress toward nuclear disarmament. Now, the United States, and quite rightly, has argued that it has done many, many things to bring down the numbers of nuclear weapons we've been exceedingly transparent we have you know released a lot of data we've stopped producing fissile material for nuclear weapons we've you know th- there's there's a long long list of things that we have done that have been helpful towards this cause but ultimately we still have nuclear weapons um, and those countries got a little tired after all these decades um, there were efforts within the Conference on Disarmament in Geneva um, to put in place treaties that would help move us towards nuclear disarmament. One of those was the Comprehensive Test Ban Treaty. It was signed in 1996, still hasn't entered into force. Uh, Another was a, a treaty that would ban the production of fissile material, that is, highly enriched uranium and separated plutonium, Um, for weapons. That treaty, they started negotiations um, briefly in the mid-1990s. Nothing has ever happened, right? So you can see there's been some frustration on the parts of other countries. They've said, well, we've given up nuclear weapons. What have you guys done for us lately? And so they decided they would negotiate, not in Geneva, but in New York uh, this spring, a treaty that would actually ban nuclear weapons. Okay, so for people who think that nuclear weapons are useful, this seems ludicrous, right? But we actually do have two other treaties that ban weapons of mass destruction. One is the Chemical Weapons Treaty. It bans chemical weapons. We can see how successful that has been (laughs) with Syria, but nonetheless, that scourge has been largely shrunk. The Biological Weapons Convention has also banned biological weapons. So there's a certain logic that, you know, if you want to reduce the risk, uh, uh, you might have a treaty that bans nuclear weapons. The problem with this is that the nuclear weapons states and many of their allies boycotted the negotiations. There was only one country, the Netherlands, which benefits from. what we call the NATO nuclear umbrella, right? It's a member of NATO, and uh, the U.S. has pledged to provide protection to it in the case of, you know, a Russian incursion. The Netherlands ambassador participated in the negotiations and ultimately did not vote for the ban treaty. That ban treaty has opened for signature at the U.N., and um, I think that it will enter into force uh, in the nearer future, it has no teeth, right? It is a legal prohibition right now that has no verification. It has even it has provision in the future if countries that have nuclear weapons come into the treaty and decide to give them up. There's a provision in the treaty to set up an organization for verification. There are all kinds of obstacles and hurdles. Um, to doing this i mean you can imagine if you don't know how many nuclear weapons there are worldwide just how difficult it would be to verify that they're all gone um you can also imagine that um all of the countries you know if if 8 of the 9 countries that have nuclear weapons decide to give them up but the ninth doesn't maybe that's north korea you could imagine that's also a problem so So this treaty, however, I think serves a symbolic purpose, which is um, agreement among a a large number of countries in the world that more needs to be done to reduce the risks that we face from nuclear weapons.
1: It doesn't seem like this is going to happen now, facing the world that we have right now with with North Korea, obviously, um, continuing to test and continuing to kind of fly in the face of, of um, the international community but what would it take and what kind of steps would there need to be taken uh, to move further toward this to a nuclear zero world to to get countries to to step up and say that they no longer want to be part of um, being nuclear weapon states
0: when you ask the Chinese about nuclear arms control their consistent response is, well, when the U.S. and Russia come down to our level of nuclear weapons, then we'll talk. So they're not wrong. Um, And we've been trying, at least under the Obama administration, officials tried to bring in other nuclear weapon states, not just the Russians, to talk about different issues, whether it was strategic stability, you know how do we keep how do we keep the peace um, not only when there are nuclear weapons but when there aren't nuclear weapons so I don't think the Chinese are wrong. I think the first step is the us and Russia have to get back on track and agree on the need to do A variety of things. One would be reducing alert levels, right? Nuclear forces can be launched within a very short period of time. That creates certain risks for decision makers um, in case there are errors in their computer systems or their command and control systems or their threat warning indicators. So that's one thing. Uh, Reducing the numbers, you know, taking postures that are less less threatening, less risky. Even it comes down to military doctrines, right? So now the U.S. is concerned that the Russians have a doctrine of using nuclear weapons in a conventional conflict to uh, de-escalate a convention, conventional conflict, the kind of thing that actually NATO um, advocated during the Cold War. Uh, You know, in case the Russians came through the Fulda gap, we were prepared to, you know, use maybe tactical nuclear weapons. Um, Reducing tactical nuclear weapons, right? Reducing the number, scope, sort of – there's there's a host of things that have to happen. And these are very important discussions that U.S. and Russian, both political and military um, officials, need to undertake. China has to be brought in. India and Pakistan, the UK and France, uh, we need to have a pathway toward reduced numbers of nuclear weapons. And then, of course, you need to address the hard cases, Israel, North Korea. I mean, India and Pakistan, they are also hard cases, right, because uh, not only is it a bilateral rivalry, but then China – Uh, India also has nuclear weapons to guard against a a Chinese incursion. So it's a trilateral deterrent relationship. It's not an easy thing, but that doesn't mean that we just leave it to the future because there are so many um, developments in emerging technologies, whether it's cyber hacking or artificial intelligence that really condense the time that's available to, you know, as as this technology has diffused throughout the world, the time available for making decisions, I mean, we're all much more globally connected, but the time available for making decisions has shrunk. And so in that environment, having nuclear weapons that, that can reach their targets within 30 minutes is profoundly destabilizing whole books have been written on you know how you move towards disarmament and and there are uh nobody knows the answers you know these are very very tough questions and my my guess is that we have to move towards this slowly so for example when the berlin wall came down um US the US and um the Soviet Union had each about 10,000 weapons. Um and everyone said, "Well, we can never go below 10,000 weapons." And then we got to 3,000 weapons and everybody said, "Well, we can never go below 3,000 weapons." And now it's the the number is 1,000. "Well, we can never go below 1,000 weapons because that affects our our strategic triad." You can become accustomed, I believe. To lower numbers of nuclear weapons, but it takes time. And you do have to have the right security environment to feel comfortable. And so that, more than anything else, is what we have to work towards shaping, the right security environment and the right mindset. And then we put measures into place, arms control and treaties and legally binding agreements that give us the confidence that we can move forward and, you know, shape that world where those nuclear risks are reduced.
1: No, I understand that, but I mean, I guess if you're, if you feel safe, you don't need a nuclear weapon. If you feel like you're under threat, that is seems to be the trump card now, especially if you're if you're Kim Jong Un. That is his failsafe against either regime change or uh, any sort of invasion.
0: Well, you know, this this is the ultimate problem, right? Which is as long as we think that nuclear weapons are essential to our security, other countries will believe the same. And that takes a lot of, you know, either we need to make a decision that these weapons, which we have never used since 1945 – are too dangerous to keep around, too costly, and too risky because of the threat of terrorism, or we find some low level of uh, nuclear risk, some you know low levels of stockpiles, and and uh, strong uh, verification that you know we ultimately live with until they are obsolete.
1: And that was Sharon Squissoni bringing us to the end of our show. If you're looking for more from Shannon, I've provided some links to her latest work in the show's description. Finally, if you have any feedback on the show, email me at cquinn at csis.org or find me on Twitter. That's it from me. See you all next week.